This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business. Well, something that I've mentioned on the show before, but it's been a while. Is this astounding fact? Did you know that we're heading into an unprecedented wealth transfer? It has been said that within the next few decades, as much as up to 68 trillion with a T, up to 68 trillion in wealth will pass from the baby boomers to the next generation, specifically Gen Xers and millennials. Now, this is a critical moment for nonprofits to connect meaningfully with their potential donors. So how best can you connect with donors in a truly meaningful way? Well, my guest today will share just how. Lisa Greer is my guest today, and Lisa is a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, a convener, and an author. And as of 2021, she's the commissioner of the California State Commission on the Status of Women and Girls and the chair of the Giving Back Fund. And also, she's got a new book out called Philanthropy Revolution, How to Inspire Donors, Build Relationships, and Make a Difference. All of you who are seeking to raise funds for your organization will really enjoy today's show. Also, I wanted to mention the fact that it's been five years now since I first started this show. I mean, honestly, it's really hard to believe, but it's been truly one of the highlights of my professional life to have the opportunity to connect with and to learn from so many great nonprofit leaders from across this country and from other countries. You know, over the next several months, in fact, I'll be assembling some of my top takeaways from my many, many interviews over the years and putting that together for nonprofit leaders just like you to benefit from. So in the meantime, the best way to get extra content is by signing up for my monthly email update. You can simply go to my website and fill out the contact form at the top right-hand side of the page. It's super easy, and you'll start receiving this monthly content right to your inbox. Okay, enough intro. Now on to the show. Oh, well, thanks for being on the show, Lisa. Today's topic... It's going to be all about fundraising and development. And as I said before the show started, we can never talk enough about fundraising and development when it comes to nonprofits because it's our lifeblood. And you've written a new book entitled Philanthropy Revolution. And so I wanted to start with an astounding fact that actually we've talked a bit about on the show before with another guest, but it's this, that we're heading into an unprecedented wealth transfer. And it's been said that in fact, in the next few decades, as much as up to 68 trillion you heard that correctly, up to 68 trillion in wealth will pass from baby boomers to the next generation, specifically Gen Xers and millennials. That's something that ought to get the attention of every nonprofit leader out there. So if nonprofits aren't ready and prepared to connect meaningfully with their potential donors, they could really lose out on this transfer of wealth. And so I thought I'd start with that because I think that's something that you really uh, lean into is that connection with donors, meaningfully connecting with donors. Maybe you could talk about this massive wealth transfer and how can nonprofits really connect with donors in a meaningful way? So there's $150 billion in, in donor advice funds, as you said. And a lot of people think that that money is there because these are wealthy people who just want the tax break and don't want to give any money to charity. 
And I don't believe that that's the case. I think maybe there's a few bad apples in there, but I think most of those people, the money is there because they've probably, either they're intimidated by the act of talking to a fundraiser, and and I think uh, with good reason from my experience, but I, I also think that a lot of them have had one experience with a fundraiser, and it's been so off-putting and onerous and weird that they just say, you know, forget it. I'm just going to put the money in the donor advice fund. And maybe at some point in the future, I'll meet somebody who's a development person who's going to, who I'm going to click with and and, and want to work with this. And, the, and then at that point, I'll take the money out of the donor advice fund and send it on to a charity. So I really do believe that's the case. So that's the first thing. I also see it as a great big pile of opportunity. And that is really just not being gone after. People think that that money's locked up. Uh, they think that they can go to the donor advice fund people and 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 they can say, you know, please, the, the big funds and say, tell me everybody who has a fund. It's not going to happen. They're not going to be able to get that information. And yet, um, as, as I tell people all the time, when you are sending out a solicitation as a nonprofit and you say, uh, whether it's online or it's offline, or, you know, direct mail, whatever it is, and you don't recognize that people are reading that who have donor advice funds when there is $150 billion sitting there, more coming every day. It makes the person on the other side think, you guys just aren't kind of with it. Like, you just don't get it that our money is coming. Because I've had many, many situations where I want to give money. And the only way to give it, when I go online, I fill out the information. I'm sure you've had this too. I get to the point, they say, give us your credit card. Well, I don't want to give my credit card because I can't get reimbursement from my donor advice fund. So I need to say it's a donor advice fund thing. Either I see nothing on the paperwork about that saying, as simple as we welcome your donor advice fund. Here's the address to give the people who are going to send the check. Thank you very much. And please put in this little box how much money you're going to give. I have found a grand total, and I probably look at 100 of these a month. I found one that had that information on it. And, wow. and that's really, it's really not good. And so, but what they do is sometimes they'll say, for if, if you would like to give your check from a donor advice fund, please call this number and ask for whoever, or please email this person. You know what? I don't want to do that. I just want to get this over with right now. I don't want to have to go back through it. So it's a simple, free thing that can be done. You just put it on all your materials. You make it a normal thing. I love that practicality. And I hope people are listening because that's like, you're right. That is something that one out of a hundred, not good odds. So let's uh, change that here in the next uh, near future. Well, Lisa, you also argue that some nonprofit organizations are using strategies that really actually turn out to alienate donors, maybe even if it's inadvertently, and they leave money on the table, uh, which is putting thousands of organizations at risk now, as well as in the future. Why do you believe that is the case? Uh, well, why, well, why are fundraisers alienating donors or why are donors not putting money on the table? Let's say both. I think it's both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's cover them both. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think that, um, I, I think they, they connect, right? I don't think donors are giving because fundraisers alienate them. And then there's other reasons as well that, that, but, but it all comes back to one big piece, which is not thinking about the donor as a human being. If a fundraiser just thinks of the donor, not as some alien being, like I was not raised with money. I was raised in a very kind of middle-class home. And all of a sudden we had money and people, it it was almost like some people just expected us to turn into really nasty people with attitude. And most people with money aren't like that. There are some, and there's also some people without money who are like that, but but for people to think that I'm a different person or that they have to stand around me and say, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. And I know for, sh- for sure that they don't agree with me. It's inauthentic. And it also means that the person doesn't think of me as a regular person. In fact, what I think they think of me and, and what most 
donors think when they're talking to some of these uh, fundraisers is that we're just a piggy bank. What they see is they don't see me. They don't see my face. They see the stuff I have, maybe jewelry or something, and they see a piggy bank. And they just want to go break that piggy bank, take the money and run and have us not really even talk to them. I think they'd prefer that we were inanimate objects. And I know that's a little harsh. And I don't think that by any means that all fundraisers think that. But I do think that some do. And I and the more importantly, as a donor, it feels to me like they think that. And that tells you there's a big problem. Being in the nonprofit space, one of the biggest questions I get is about grant funding. Nonprofit leaders know that grants can be a very important part of their overall revenue, but knowing how to write grants well and where to find them can leave many of us overwhelmed. It's a good thing my friend Holly Rustic at Grant Writing and Funding creates ways to make grant writing simple and achievable. Well, here's the good news. She is offering you, my listener, a free grant writing class. And of course, she also has her own podcast, Grant Writing and Funding. So I encourage you to visit grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob for the free grant writing class and find out more about Grant Writing and Funding podcast. Once again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash Rob. That's really interesting. And, you know, the building relationships with donors is so critical. In fact, I want to talk about that in terms of communication. This is one of your specialties, I think. What works and what doesn't? From your experience, how can nonprofits better communicate to donors? So I, I have a wonderful story about this. Somebody called me, one of the organizations that I, that I consult with and have for a while, and they said, we did our gala or one of our big events online, and uh, with, as many people did over the last 18 months. Um, and they said, because it was online, people were tuning in who in the past hadn't. It would have been a local event, right? This is the same for everybody. So, so they had people from, I think it was like 27 different countries, and some of them sent them money. And they said, I, I think there were 500 new donors. And they, the head of development called me and said, I don't know what to do with this. Because if they were local, I'd invite them to our offices and to meet our staff. And we would sit down and have coffee. But we can't do that because they are in these 20 whatever different countries. So he said, I don't even know. And I said, hey, this is great news. They sent you money. That's wonderful. And now they're on your mailing list and everything. And he said, yeah, but I don't have any idea who they are. And my answer to him, which I totally understand his comment, but my answer to him was then ask them. All you have to do is ask them. So we created a survey, an online survey, quick and easy, had a few questions on it, asking them a few questions about themselves. And people were so impressed that they sent more money just because he asked. And I thought that was amazing. One person sent a note and said, I didn't know that fundraisers cared, which is really telling and sad. But it's, it's if you just ask somebody, it's, again, we are a donor. I don't, didn't become a donor you know, overnight. And by the way, 60% of donors now are first generation wealthy like me. And we didn't turn into some sort of monster who's going to bite you across the table. It's just, we're the same person. We just happen to have these extra means and the the privilege of being able to give to different organizations. So to be afraid of saying something to me makes me feel really uncomfortable. I'm sure it makes them feel uncomfortable. And then they leave and there's an opportunity that just disappeared. And I think it's all about just how would you like to be on the other side of the table? How would you, you know, wouldn't you love it if somebody said, how would you like to be communicated with? Or how would you like to be thanked in a survey? You're going to go, hey, that's cool. No one's ever asked that. And, and yet, if you go to a doctor's office anywhere in the country, maybe in other countries, every doctor's office says, 
How would you like us to communicate with you? Do you want it to be text or do you want it to be email? Instead, so many fundraisers now insist on making phone calls. And I know lots of people who don't take, my kids don't take my phone calls. It's, it's got to be a text message. And why, why haven't we changed? And so it's so easy. And that's, I'm, I'm completely baffled by these sort of simple things that, that are so easy. And I think the root of it is fundraisers thinking that donors aren't like them and don't share any of the same uh, hopes and dreams and feelings. And that's just false. Well, I really like what you're saying. And in a sense, what you're essentially saying is that how would you want other people to communicate to you? There's turning around the tables, as you mentioned. And once you understand that, you feel like that'll give some clarity to the nonprofit leaders out there to know exactly how to ask them for money. Right, right, right. You know, everybody I talk to as a donor, everybody I know, everybody you know, everybody has given, I don't care what their economic means are, everybody has given a coat to somebody or given something to PTA or whatever it is. And so that's the first chore, I think, is say, okay, I am now a donor. I accept that I'm a donor. So the first thing that I think is important for people to do, uh, and it's really a no-brainer, is think about the emails that you're sending out. Think about the last mass email you sent. Put that in your email and email it to yourself. Don't look at your email the next morning. Do it like late at night. Pick out whatever email it is that you're sending off to a whole group of donors and whatever it says, the same way that you would do it. You can even use one that you used last week. And then in the morning, when you have a bunch of emails there, look at your list of your 25 or 50 or 100 emails and you say to yourself, would I respond to that? And if you wouldn't respond to it, and most people say they would not, then don't send it out anymore. Think about something that you would respond to. So it's exactly what you just said. It's just turning the tables and saying, if I'm on the other side, what am I going to respond to? And and I know some people will say, yes, but these are to donors. No, these are to human beings. So if you won't respond to it, you got to believe that the donor is not going to respond to it. So, so you kind of use that method throughout everything you do. And you'll find that donors are much more engaged. They want to talk to you and they will give you money. In many cases, they'll give you money unsolicited because now you have a relationship instead of a transaction going on. Well, I couldn't agree with you more from my experience. You're spot on. So yeah, again, I hope my listeners are really paying attention to that one. Just treat them like you'd want them to treat you. Treat them as human beings. Build a relationship with them. So critical. Okay, so communication. Now moving on to branding. That's something also that you talk about in your book, and you've done a lot of uh, different work with organizations when it comes to branding. Now, when it comes to a nonprofit's brand, there are several things that leaders do inadvertently that actually can negatively impact their brand. What are those pitfalls in your mind that nonprofit leaders need to avoid in order to prevent their brand from being diminished? Great, 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 great question. And one that I don't get very often. Well, first of all, there's this reticence among nonprofits to be thought of as a business. So some people, when I say brand, they're already going to say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. We don't have a brand because we're not a business. We need to get over that. There's a lot of good things that happen in business and a lot we can learn from it. And, and oh, by the way, a lot of the donors are business people and they're used to those kinds of mechanics. So, so we need to do, we need to listen to that. And, and, and a brand branding is part of that. So you need to protect that brand just like any business does. And you are a business as well. You're a nonprofit business, but you need to protect that brand with everything you've got and make sure that that brand is everything you want it to be. So when somebody says, I'll give you a few different examples. When a big donor comes and says, we would like you to change what you do. It's not on mission, but we want you to do it differently. And if you do it this way, we're going to give you X number of dollars. You need to stop thinking about, ooh, money, easy, got it, coming and think about brand. What is that going to do to everything that I've built and everything that my predecessors have built? And what is that going to do to the people that we're helping in, in our mission? Can I afford to do that? 
And your answer typically is going to be no. And then that gives you the strength to go back to that donor and say, you know what, that's not on mission with us. And if you want to do something like that, you know, here's some other organizations that might be interested if you want to be super nice and if you think that's worthwhile. But, but if it's a donor who's saying, you know, you have to do whatever I say and it doesn't matter what it is, you need to have the backbone really to say, not a fit, not going to happen. That's not what we're about. And, and when you send out emails that say, and this, I get one every day, it drives me crazy. And the subject matter, subject line of the email is, we're three days from our deadline, our quarter end, and we're short $5,000, or we're, we're not quite there yet. We need your money. What I think when I hear that, they, I guess someone who's sending that thinks that I'm going to say, oh, poor you, I'm going to send you that $5,000. Instead, when I see that, I think, not my problem that you didn't budget correctly. Like, what's wrong with you? And, and I don't think that the fundraisers, when they send those out, realize that that's what I'm hearing. And so I'm just thinking, you're an organization that doesn't have their act together. And so I get another one from that organization, say, two, three months later. And I think, that's not somebody I want to give money to ever. And, and that's really, really important. Our organizations also in terms of brand, that realize there's a lot of people who will come, who, who interact with you. There's a lot of staff. And if you treat your staff like, oh, you're at a nonprofit, so you have to take less money. And, oh, you're at a nonprofit, we can, we can have you work hours that, that, that you know, we don't record because you're going to say it's all for the greater good. People are going to go on to the next job and they're going to remember what this, how you did that. And that is going to be what they're going to remember more than almost anything else. And they're going to communicate that to other people, especially now when people are going, you know, people stay two years in a job or something like that. That, that affects your brand. If you, so, so what I would hear as a donor in that particular case is, gee, organization does great work. They treat their people really badly. Am I going to give to them? No. So you really need to think of it that way. And, and again, how would you feel if it wasn't you sending it, but it was somebody else sending it to you? How would that make you feel? And I have to believe that, that anybody who goes through that is going to feel the same, same way that, that I see it, not because it's me, but because I'm just a human and they're a human. So that's where it kind of comes back to. Well, it's interesting. It's always a temptation, isn't it? When you are struggling to meet a deadline financially. And so you send out those pleas, probably every nonprofit leader is one time or another get sent out those desperate pleas for, oh, please, we have two more days left. We have one more day left. And, and they're really pushing it. But you're saying basically that actual backfire because that actually communicates that you're really not organized. You haven't budgeted very well. And in, in, instead of actually prompting someone to give, it's actually going to prompt you not to give in the future. Is that what you found? That's exactly right. And it's not going, that's not a relationship when somebody says, Oh, we're right at the end. Give us money. It's, I am not going to think, Oh, I really love this organization. I really want to help them out. And it, most of the time I'm not, I mean, unless I really have a good relationship with them, I'm going to look at that and say, No, 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 that's not for me, but it gets worse. So the part where it gets worse, and I'm guess, I'm, I'm guessing you know what this is too, is it'll say end of the quarter, whatever, $5,000 short. And maybe you give them some money. And the next day, what does the email say? It says, it's the beginning of the quarter. Let's start off with a bang. Send us money now. Oh my God, you can't win. And as a donor, it's just, you feel so manipulated. Mm -hmm. That's so true. That's so true. Like, oh no. And yeah. And like you said, you, you, many donors say, I'm not giving to that nonprofit again. And you may not say anything. And the nonprofit may not totally clue in. Hey, that person hasn't given for a while, but there you go. That that's one of the reasons manipulation versus a relationship. That's really the difference. We'll be right back. Are you looking for an easy and effective way to boost your nonprofit's donations? 
Well, look no further than DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your fundraising efforts, maximizes donations, and simplifies giving for your supporters. With DonorBox, you can create beautiful donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, track donations, and send auto receipts. And the best part? There are no setup or monthly fees and no long-term contracts required. So what are you waiting for? Visit DonorBox.org today to get started. That is www.DonorBox.org. Do you want a clear step-by-step system to write grants so that your nonprofit secures funding in a stress-free manner? Well, check out the free grant writing class, How to Write Winning Grants in 7 Proven Steps. You will walk away with 7 nuggets of grant writing clarity and a free action workbook so you can start writing higher quality grants today. Just watch this free class now at grantwritingandfunding.com slash rob. Again, that's grantwritingandfunding.com slash rob. All right. Well, another topic that comes up quite a bit when it comes to fundraising is competition, right? There is a, a mentality sometimes out there of a scarcity mentality. Like there's only only so much money, only so many donors to connect with. So it turns into some serious competition sometimes. Now, there's always a good, friendly competition, I think, between nonprofits. It's pretty normal and actually collegial and it's fun. But then there's this competition that doesn't kind of turns negative, right? And uh, particularly when it comes to donors, it can really turn negative quickly. And so my question, I guess, will turn around, and, and maybe I'm assuming what you're going to say is why does undermining other nonprofits potentially sabotage the whole nonprofit sector? Yeah, and it, it, it absolutely does that. I had heard a story about a very large organization, and this is a true story, that when they got to my name or somebody like me in their database, they would say, oh, she gives to XYZ organization. They're a competitor of ours. And weren't even really a competitor. And then they would instruct their their development people to talk to their team and say, let's create some, let's find something that matches what they do at this other organization. And and if they didn't have anything, they would say, let's create it so that this person won't give to that other organization anymore. That's horrible. It's bad karma, it's bad mojo, all that kind of thing. And it it makes the whole sector look well, it makes me think That's why there's $150 billion sitting in donor advice funds, and that's why people aren't giving. So the second piece of that, though, is that I strongly believe that the high uh, of of donors, uh, the universe of donors that most nonprofits are looking at is extremely small and is much less than the actual universe of donors. There's loads and loads and loads of people out there who have not given. and, And by the way, we have a huge opportunity right now because there are a lot of people who never gave. And then gave during COVID. And we need to make sure that those people, that we embrace them, that we say, what is it that you, you enjoy? We don't get them into this whole world of, oh, no, you gave money to this. Why didn't you give money? To-? I actually did have one person say, why didn't you give money to me when you gave money to them? Which is just doesn't make me love them anymore. But I think that we have people who gave their first $75, their first $200, their first $500. And it felt pretty good. And they want to do more of that. We need to say as a sector... We're going to find those people and we're going to say thank you. And we're not going to say, oh, they only gave $500. They go in the lower level under a thousand people. That's a first time donor who's dipping their toe in the water. And we need to realize that that could be your biggest donor ever. You don't know. And, and you have to make them feel comfortable about what they're doing and feel good about it. So you start that relationship. Instead, I see a lot of organizations who say, oh, anybody under a thousand dollars or whatever their threshold is. Yeah, they just go with the, you know, 
the, the, the low paid people who will just call them and they'll get direct mail. And you make all these assumptions about that person and you have no idea who that person is. So if we really realize, and I think one of the statistics that I really love, uh, this is from about a year and a half ago, it's about millennial millionaires in the United States. And, and obviously there's quite a few in other places too, but millennial millionaires could now go up to about 40 years old. But millennials, there's all these assumptions about millennials, like about what they're like and all those things. And hopefully we're learning it's different. But one of those assumptions that we have does not include 618,000 of them have being millionaires. There are 618,000 millennial millionaires in this country. 618,000. And wow. how many? I don't think so, most people know that. No, they don't. And that was about a year and a half ago. I'm guessing there's quite a few more now. And those are people that usually we say, oh, no, they're under 40. They can't give. Oh, no, they can't be on our board. They'll never be able to make the minimum commitment. Oh, no, we're not going to invite them. They're millennials, so they're slackers. All of that kind of stuff, 618,000 of them. Now, how many, I can ask this two different ways. The first question I love to ask people is, how many of them do you have on your board? And what do you think the answer is? Zero. Most of the time, it's zero. And occasionally I'll find one, but most of the time it's zero. And some people look at me, raise their eyebrows and say, I don't understand why I don't, I don't, I don't know why I would want to have them on my board. They're different. They talk a different language. And that's just the point. We need to learn that different language. We need to recognize these people exist and we need to be there and say, Hey, we're going to help you to achieve all these wonderful things that you can now achieve by helping other people through your means. And, and we're also going to introduce you to people who've been doing this for a long time on our board. Now, let's continue to talk about funding. I've had other guests on my show that point out that charitable giving actually is down. And if you look over the last couple of years, there's a downward trajectory now for a while. And then with COVID, there's an initial upsurge in giving, but then the overall trend line still uh, in terms of giving to charity is overall still kind of on the downward trend. Is that what you're seeing in your neck of the woods, so to speak? And do you believe it's time for nonprofits to completely retool their fundraising strategy? And if so, how? Well, that's the perfect question. Thank you so much. And that is why I spent about three years writing a book called Philanthropy Revolution. And I do believe it's a revolution. I do believe that we have to change a whole lot of how we do fundraising. There might be a few pieces to keep, but a whole lot of it is just those standard methods. Uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, stories that I start my book off with is, is and this is it's very quick and easy. But I told somebody I was giving them a very large gift, a seven figure gift, and I had just started giving. And I got on the phone and I, I got an actual telephone and I said, "It's unsolicited. I'm giving you this gift." And the answer I got was, "I don't know what to say." And I said. Um, I guess you could say thank you. You know, I, I I honestly said that. Yes. And this person said to me, I don't know if I can because I didn't make an ask. And that is how outdated the way that we do fundraising is. For people who are being given an unsolicited donation and not know how to accept it, and then say, I can't even accept it because I haven't made it. I haven't gone through the process, a process that was created something like a hundred years ago. That's crazy. And, and that is really not that unusual. And, and so I, I do believe that we need to, and, and again, we can look at how do we feel if we think of ourselves as donors, which of this would we change? And I believe that everybody who goes through this process will be able to see, you know what, we need to change a whole lot of this. We can't say, you know, if someone wants to give us an unsolicited gift, we say, great. If somebody wants, and thank you, if somebody says, I want to give you this gift, And I also want to get my hands dirty or what a lot of new donors do is they say, 
I want to volunteer and get my hands dirty first, see how you operate. And then I want to talk about giving. You need to embrace that and say, great, uh, we'd love to have you come be part of the team. That's awesome. Whereas the old fashioned rule that a lot of people still use is that donors and volunteers are in different buckets and they should never really meet each other. And that doesn't work. Well, it sounds like if the more questions we ask of our donors, the more good feedback we'll get and it'll actually impact our strategy for the better. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Donors don't like to talk about this because uh, when, when I started working on this and, and started writing my book, I thought, well, why, why am I the first book written by a donor? Why doesn't anybody else do it? There's hundreds or thousands of books written by fundraising teachers and, and development people and all of that. And I, I couldn't understand it. So I asked a bunch of the donors and I said, people I know. And I said, why, what do you do when you have a bad experience? You know, do you tell the organization what it is that they could have done better so that they can learn? And almost all of them just said, no, uh, why? I'm giving them money and I can just give money to whoever else does what they do. I can just not give them money. I can hang up the phone on them if I don't like the way they talk to me. So, and then it's over. But then my answer to them was, but that doesn't help anybody do better because you're not, they're not getting any feedback. So when you ask a donor for feedback, it shows that you care. It shows that you respect them. And my only caveat to that is if you're going to ask for feedback and input and ask somebody, for example, how they want to be communicated with, you need to honor that. So as long as you honor that, that's the beginning of a relationship. And that's where people will start giving you money. Then, And it's really not hard to ask them at that point. Now, really good point. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked about with other guests on this show as it be, uh, really ties into this relationship with donors is during COVID. And even now that we're emerging out of the COVID crisis, there, for a lot of people that maybe normally would give to your nonprofit, they may have hit financial hard times or they just uh, just didn't, they don't have the extra money they used to to give, or maybe they still give to your organization, but they're going to give less. How do you, as a fundraiser and as a development person in a nonprofit, how do you balance connecting with the reality that, okay, maybe you don't have as much to give, but it doesn't mean you ignore them and move on to the next donor that has more to give. How do you maintain that relationship and respectfully still ask for support, but do it in a way that you acknowledge, hey, I realize you may not have as much to give, but we'd love to have your support if it's possible. How do you kind of find that that fine line, so to speak, with uh, keeping that relationship strong, but yet still asking for money from those who maybe don't have that same amount they used to have? So most people have fallen on hard times at some point in their life and just put yourself in that position and just say the thing I was saying before and say, how would I have liked to be addressed when that happened? What would have motivated me? And the best thing for me, at least, and I'm guessing for many other people, is if somebody says, I see you, I hear you, I understand, I still want to be connected with you. I and you know, because we have a relationship, we're in this for the long term. We're going to keep telling you how we're doing. And when you feel like you're up to jumping in again, great. But if for now you want to come to, you know, whatever, some sort of events or you want to, you know, be notified of our online talks or whatever it is, or you want to get your hands dirty and actually packing sandwiches or whatever it is, we would love for you to do that. And guess what? It makes somebody who's fallen on hard times feel really good to be able to give back in some way. And if they can't give back financially, they can give back through work they do with their hands or a connection or whatever. It makes them feel good. So you are helping them feel better and feel good. Therefore, that's a relationship. And the minute that you stop thinking about, oh, no, get rid of them because they can't give me money anymore. That's very short term thinking. And it's not it's not beneficial. And it's why 18 only 18 percent of uh, first time donors give a second time because they get the feeling during that first year that these people are just in this for just getting money out of me and I'm not interested. So, so 82% of donors don't give a second year, the second year after they give the first year. 82%. 
That's yeah. really interesting. I didn't know that's a, a much higher rate than I had thought that would be the case. And it's been increasing every year, by the way. Very interesting. So retention is so critical. It is so critical. And and why do people, why is that an issue? It's not because you didn't bug them enough and make enough phone calls and say, give me money. It's because you don't have a relationship with them and you didn't give them the sense that you care about them. And being a nonprofit, part of what we do is we care. That's what we're supposed to be doing. This is a place where people have purpose by being part of it. So if you turn somebody into a piggy bank, it's it just diminishes the entire your entire reason for being. And then that connection is lost forever. You know, that's so important that you're emphasizing this relationship piece. You know, for many nonprofits, they're really, really good about caring for the community, particularly if it's a humanitarian organization. And yet when it comes to donors, sometimes it flips, right? That same caring attitude, that compassionate heart for the person, sometimes does always translate to donors. And you're saying, no, you treat people equally. We're all human beings. And that's actually going to improve your, your donor relationships and, and your biggest supporters. So maybe one last question. You've been mentioning this multiple times, but I want to just ask it one more way. It's important important for organizations to understand the donor's perspective on giving. Uh, So when it comes to crafting your ask, so to speak, and asking your donors for whatever funds you need for your organization, it's so critical, again, to think through the whole process from the donor's perspective. You keep mentioning that, which I think is right on. It's so critical to the healthy organization. So maybe for the people that are listening and are like, okay, I know I need to improve my approach. What are the first one or two things they ought to do today that really will help them move from just doing the normal ask, going through the motions, as you mentioned before, and truly changing their perspective to thinking, okay, I want to get in the shoes of the donor so I can do a better ask so that my fundraising is more successful. Right. So, so that's a wonderful, wonderful question. And something that I think every, everybody should look at, because I I actually think, you know, most fundraisers only stick around in their jobs for about 18 months. What, why is that? So I think it's because it can't be much fun on the fundraisers part either to talk to somebody that way without really knowing anything about them and just try and get money out of them. That just can't be, you know, a happy thing for people. And uh, so any gratifying. So, so the first thing that you want to do is you want to actually get to know who that person is as a person. You need to recognize that everybody's different. And so I recommend that everybody does, this is super easy. Everybody does a five minute Google search. You can use wealth engines all day long. Some of them are accurate. Some of them are far from accurate. I just did my own recently, just as a, at LARC to see it was completely off, like not even close. Seriously, oh, seriously, not, not even close. But if you look at somebody for five minutes on Google, which many of you have probably done or Facebook or if it's open or whatever, you'll get to know that person as a person, not as a checkbook. And that's an arcane term, but not as a person who's going to give you money. They're actually a person. And and get the person on the other side, when you're talking to that donor, they're going to appreciate that you're going to say, hey, I saw you used to be in the shoe business. My aunt and uncle were in the shoe business. Isn't, you know, all of a sudden, that tells the donor, oh, they see me. They, they can see that I'm a person. They can see that I'm an individual, that I'm not a, a dollar sign. Boy, I think that's excellent advice. And I encourage all my listeners again to really pay attention to that because you're absolutely right. Think about it for all jobs. People will either do a Facebook search, a Google search, something. They're going to try to look you up online to see what kind of person you are. So absolutely well said. Well, people that are listening to this podcast, they want to connect with you or they want to find out more about your book. How can they do that? Great. Thank you so much. This is all wonderful because I love talking to anybody who's interested in doing better at this. I'm completely committed to the sector. And uh, which, by the way, our sector is now largest than manufacturing as of last year. And uh, I, I, I want to see this sector flourish and I want to see everybody, everybody wins if it's done right. 
So if you go to lisagreer.com, uh, my main website, you'll see links there to how you can purchase the book. You'll see links to my blog, uh, Philanthropy 451, which you can also go to directly at philanthropy451.com. I write an article about every 10 days, two weeks about things that are current. And I also have a list of uh, a, a number of the uh, other podcasts and things I've been on, and we'll be promoting this as well there too. But I also have a list of my tips of the week. And these are super easy things that I do every Monday. And there's a whole list of them online that you can take a look at. And, and I don't think I've ever done a single one that costs money. So it's really, really easy. And I highly recommend it. And I hope to be able to engage with all of you. Well, Lisa, thanks again for being on the show and sharing your insights. Again, this is so critical to the health of our organizations. And with all this transfer of wealth going on right now, this is such a good opportunity for nonprofits to really get to know those donors, build those relationships so that at the end of the day, it can further their organization and they can actually accomplish their mission of what they're doing in the first place. So Lisa, again, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business.